Hey, everybody. It is Monday. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. We got a lot of news to talk about today. Yeah, we'll do a little recap of all in episode 92. A lot of great feedback on that. And then we're going to talk about cryptocurrency. Yes, because FTX had some leaked documents, massive growth from 2020 to 2021. Massive growth. So, you know, we're going to speculate that perhaps uh, when you financialize a product before it actually has any value, that might be um, back backwards development. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Interesting discussion. Then we're going to talk about Amazon's reported bid to buy Signify Health and what Amazon might do to the healthcare system. And spoiler alert, we just hope they freaking fix it. I'm super excited about competition coming to healthcare and innovation. And then we'll touch on eBay buying a trading card marketplace in our M&A segment and what you can learn as a founder or capital allocator from a niche marketplace forcing eBay to buy them because they kicked eBay's ass. Yep. It's just that simple. And then uh, I'm excited. I'm going to be interviewing another launch accelerator founder at about a business that is just really, really close to our customer service diva hearts. <laughs> All right. It's going to be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Neotax. Don't leave money on the table. Claim your research and development tax credits with Neotax and get $500 off any service fees related to Neotax products. Learn more at neo.tax slash twist. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's odoo.com slash twist. And masterclass learn from the world's best minds anytime anywhere and at your own pace get 15 percent off an annual membership to masterclass at masterclass.com slash startups hey everybody welcome it's monday how's your weekend molly monday monday i had a like a nice like at home i planted a bunch oh. of new plants i did mm. a bunch of hiking took care of the doggies it was nice because you know i've been traveling it's good to be oh, domestic yes. It's domestic. nice to be domestic. I just uh, came back from my little Tahoe stint. My 12-year-old started school up again today. Uh, big Aww. seventh grade. I took her out to a seventh grade dinner last night, as is my little tradition. Take him out to dinner to get ready for the new year. So cute. So cute. And then my six-year-old started, I guess, on Monday or Tuesday. So I'm back. It's peculiar here in the Bay Area because depending on the school you go to, a lot of the teachers are gone. Or <laughs> burning <What>? man. <laughs> What? No way. Yes. I, I I was part of alt school. Remember that alt school, the Google is creator school for the first year. And then I was talking to the founder and they're like, yeah, you know, like, so we're starting school, like, but we're gonna have a lot of people out or whatever, because of burning man. And we, we want people to be able to go have their burn and then teach your kids. And I was just like, <laughs> hmm, let me think this through oh for God, a second. The Bay here. Area is hmm. amazing. Also pretty amazing. I'm glad that you reminded me about that. I am now going to make plans in the city for this week and drive to San Francisco because there's no better time to drive to San Francisco. Oh my gosh, than you're gonna get a reservation. Because nobody's here. I'm gonna get I'm gonna eat at every restaurant all week long. All the yes. Oh, hot damn. So it was um yeah, uh, but I'm kind of bummed to be back from Tahoe. I just had a great summer, you know. It's so just nice. Lakes it smells and so beaches good. And yeah, I just, I think I'm a, I think I'm a country boy now. Like I think I hate the suburbs. I love cities and I love the country. I think I'm like not a suburb guy. I'm kind of yeah. out on the suburb tip, and I just want to either be in the mountains or I want to be in a city. I yeah. think that would be my ideal life. I could actually totally see that. I don't hate. I like my like. Uh, 
I call my 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 life in Oakland urban. Like yes, it's kind of suburban my neighborhood, hmm. but I'm in Oakland, and I yeah. like that. So I like I still have the sort of all the access to the city and the occasional sideshow around the corner. But I have like sidewalks and. All right, so. Uh... Did you get to catch all in this weekend? You caught the I all did. in. I did. I listen. I listen on Monday morning and make that part oh. of my like uh, dog mm. walk and drive home from school routine. Do you like Freeburger's moderator? I liked it. I like. It was nice for me job. to comment. I yeah. got to like. I know. How was that for you? Were you like relaxed or was it stressing you out? You're like, I want to. No. Know on um, five minutes ago. It was delightful to just shoot the basketball. Usually, I got to bring nice. the ball up the court. I got to pass it. People don't like where I put the ball. Everybody's complaining constantly. I challenge somebody, they get upset that I'm challenging them. I'm not picking any one bestie, but you know, some besties feel like they shouldn't be challenged ever <laughs> and they should just do a monologue. And I'm like, well, then it's not a conversation. But I, I was like, how oh. you, I liked how you put the monologue at the end, by the way, what, in what I'm now calling the mega minute. I think that's a great segment. You're not the only person who right refers end. to it as such. Well, I just decided I'm out. I don't want to talk about politics anymore. I'm so burnt out on the Trump talk. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I want to have first principle discussions about each instance. And, you know, when you have people on either side, it quickly sometimes devolves into that tribalism. Yeah. Or like talking points or people like, why didn't you bring up these three talking points? Sachs brought up these three points. You should have countered with these. Three. I'm like, I don't want to be Cinderella <laughs> cleaning up that mess. <laughs> I want to have a first principle talk, you know, which like, when it comes to some of the things that are occurring, let's say with Trump, I'm like, ah, I trust law enforcement. Yeah, there could right. be bad apples, but I overwhelmingly trust law enforcement. I come from a family of law enforcement, overwhelmingly trust them. Uh, and I would say in this instance, they're going to be like super, you know, buttoned up because it's the president, former president. So I'm like, I I'll just wait, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I think I can wait. Out. Well, it's, the, it's not a politics car. It's not a... um. It's not a philosophy or a point of view or a whatever. At this point, it's a religion conversation, right? Like it's just religion. Yes. No minds are going to be changed. So I, I, it's, yeah, I it doesn't that, yeah. feel, it doesn't feel productive. Whereas I think you had some really interesting productive, like, I mean, also, of course, I was super excited to hear the mention of our climate syndicate. I was like, I'm a, I was on all in this weekend. I mean, my name, yeah, which is and thrilling, but that was a super, yeah, that's true. I had a big Friday. Um, <laughs> Fun Friday on the internet. I got several messages from people who were like, oh my God, I didn't know you had a climate syndicate. This yeah, is good. awesome. Excellent. Let's go. It oh yeah, I did shout out that we've made some measurement stuff. What this is, we talked about this, uh, you know, I don't want to make this into VC Sunday School, but you and I have been talking about like, you know, being a great uh, investor is, you know, about the bet, it's about the companies and, you know, building these frameworks in your mind and we're learning the climate space, right, which is evolving. And there's a ton of people who want to be involved in climate, just like there's a ton of people who want to be involved in crypto. Yeah. But in emerging categories, you get this rush of people who want to be involved, some of which are capable of building world class lasting companies, mm -hmm. the majority of which, you know, might have tremendous enthusiasm, but may not be able to execute or their idea might be small or mm -hmm unfeasible, or they just don't have the depth of knowledge or experience to pull it off, right? And so you're trying to figure out, well, what, are, what is the opportunity here, right? Because yep. it has to match both things, you have to two really have three circles, like, can this be a good deal? Is this the right founder? And is this the right business, like idea, product, whatever. So you, you get this like Venn diagram of three circles. And you know, you find great founder, great idea, but maybe not a good deal. You find a great deal, great founder, bad product, whatever it is. And you, can, mm -hmm. you really got to check all these boxes, but I'm really then, happy about the first two measurement companies you found. 
I think so too. I think that's a really interesting, I, I talked about this actually on pivot, um, ah, which yeah. is that part of, you know, there's been this, just like you said, there's been this big rush into climate tech and there's these kinds of, there's this sort of question about that we're, that literally is happening in real time, right? Like what is investable in climate? So there's like founder product deal. And then in climate, you almost have to add like, yet yeah, does this exist yet? Right. Like, is does this market exist? Does this technology yes. exist? Does the infrastructure to support this technology exist? Does yeah. pricing exist for one of the commodities that you're talking about in your equation? You know, like there are so mm, many parts of this ecosystem that are still being figured out in real time. Yes. And yes. so many, in, you know, new. it's great that I'm like simultaneously a new investor in a new field because we're also all figuring out together what is investable. And like exactly. when I was listening to your carbon tax conversation and like the 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 problem of ever creating a global carbon tax comes down to measurement. It comes down to like, measurement. That's it exactly. It comes down to measurement. It's and so if that's great. our category. Yeah. yeah. Great. And maybe it is. And maybe that's not the only category. But or if maybe that's it's like, the first category. Yeah, right. Maybe, maybe that's the first, the first category. Exactly. Yeah. For VCs and you learn a whole bunch. Specifically. So we get to make great investments while we're learning. Yeah. And then the metrics would inform, okay, what's the next one to turn over? It's almost if you look at the history of the internet, it was like, okay, we need servers, SGI, you know, Sun Microsystems. Okay, we need fiber, AT&T, whatever. Okay, we need modems, Hayes modems, we need Cisco to make routing equipment. And then I was like, okay, what can we put on top of this? Okay, Google and Yahoo are indexing this. Shit. We can help you find stuff. Totally. Online. Yep. Okay, what's an application we can build on this? Okay, Amazon, you want to buy something? I don't know. Bank of America could have an app. Oh, wait, we have apps. Okay, now we have oh, we have mobile in our pocket. So like each yeah. each of these things builds and then, you know, it might be that some people are building for the 10th floor when we don't have the foundation built yet, you know, which I think a lot of crypto people talk about often. Uh, absolutely. Um, that's and that's absolutely what's happening. And so there's this I like I I hate any conversation that doesn't acknowledge an evolution that's currently in process, right? That's nascent. So if you're yelling at me about what VCs should be doing in climate or what they shouldn't mm -hmm. be doing or what they think about this and whatever, it's like, guys, we're literally figuring it out in real time. Yeah. Right we, now, we, we are building even, the plane. If you don't, e if you can't even measure what's happening. Right. Like. How are you going to tax it? I mean, we should give a shout out to the two companies we invested in, right? It's known now. Yes. Okay. So there's maybe like one of them is like an embargoed press release as of tomorrow. Oh, okay. Well, then we won't mention it until tomorrow. But we can mention the first one. Okay. Yeah. So just explain yeah. the first one we we did. Yeah. Uh, so we. What's exciting um, about that? Yeah. So the the first deal that's super exciting is about measuring shipping emissions. The company's called Sailplan. They just actually had a big write up or a big piece in WWNO, the New Orleans Public Radio Station. Shout out Public Radio oh, wow. because they signed a deal with Port Fourchon. They measure shipping emissions. And they do it like ship to ship, installing software and some sensor hardware on commercial shipping vessels, which are like a massive emitter, Polluter. obviously, yeah. right? Huge. Um, and they can Don't they use a type of fuel that is a little more raw than the fuel we use in our cars, right? They do. And actually, yeah. they use two kinds of fuel at once. And so one of the thing that's, things that's interesting about the sail plan measurement is that they can say to it, uh, you know, the captain of a particular vessel say, hey, you're emitting a lot right now, which means you're actually mm -hmm. using the bad fuel, mm -hmm. and the bad fuel costs more. So mm -hmm. there are times when they use a fuel that's less polluting, and times mm -hmm. when they use the more polluting raw fuel. Mm -hmm. 
And if they are accident and if they just like haven't switched the system yet, then they might be emitting more and also paying more. And so it like saves these shipping companies money and also uh, reduces emissions. It's sort of like the double the double goal. It's and perfect. then, you know, they're in Port Fourchon, which is a big oil and gas port, America's biggest oil and gas. Oh, my God. There's my picture on the website. Oh, wow. There's your board. Look at that. You're on the website. Oh, Congrats, Molly. my biscuits. OMG. What, what? What, um, what? But yeah, like it's about taking when you have to solve a big problem, you have to break it down into its component parts. Every problem has multiple chunks that you need to bite off in order to solve it. And so the investable part for us might be in software that measures emissions. There are probably Perfect. lots of other ways to chunk that out, yeah. but like, awesome. That's Good a start. great place to start. I love yeah, it. I'm really excited to see where this and goes. And we'll be announcing the other one tomorrow, apparently. Great. Yeah. yeah, and so if you're interested in this and you're an accredited investor, the syndicate.com slash climate, the syndicate.com slash climate. We also have a syndicate for SaaS. So if you're an accredited investor, you only want to invest in SaaS, the syndicate.com slash SaaS. And if you just want to invest in my deals, that's the syndicate.com was like the big one. And those are the Jason approved deals. So what we're going to do with the syndicate over time is have like verticals. And there's the deals that I do. And then there'll be deals that originate from our syndicate 11,000 syndicate members. But you know, some people don't want to even see climate, some people only want to see SAS, some people only want to see climate. So you can join multiple syndicates there. And um, then you look at the deals, the average investment investor puts in seven, six or 7k per deal. So you get to like, you know, if you're an accredited investor, at least you get to make small bets on things that you think could get a return or that you want to see in the world, right? Or both, uh, which or is both. quite Ideally, nice. both. Yeah, we're, not, I mean, we're not impact investors in that way. We're not like the concessionary yeah. kind. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing about being like uh, an impact investor. We all want to see good impact in the world. I like how you said that, you though. Don't, you know, the problem <laughs> is, yes. if you, no returns means no more investments. So, you, you know, right. if you take Unless a bunch of investors' money. Your structure That's and your investors know it and that, you know, and they're like deliberately and you got a double bottom line and that's the whole agreement. And everybody's like, we want this to exist and we'll take two X instead of 10. Fine. Or take no X, right? I mean, I think or that's... maybe take no X, right? Yeah. no, And then it becomes like charity. So yeah. I, I'm always a fan of, yeah, just being what they call evergreen in our business. All right. Lots I'm of actually news also, today. and before we switch to the news, one mm -hmm. very exciting thing happened over the weekend on Twitter, which is that someone called me a cold hearted blood sucking PC. Aww, I know I thought Molly. you would be so proud. Oh, Molly. You yeah. free market monster. You. I know. Mm, look at that. One you of went us. From, one of us. <laughs> you, yeah. you went from like queen of public radio, <laughs> super woke in the hills. Typical blood sucking PC. You're, you're a Bay Area. I've arrived. Liberal right, and now you're a free market monster. Look at you. Like you must be. I can see the internal conflict in you. There must be good left in you. It's like you're just turning into dark. I don't know. Turning I mean, into I guess a we'll Sith see. Lord before my eyes. I guess we'll see. Warms my heart. Will I chop Sidious in half or not? I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find. We'll find out. out. I mean, listen. I mean, it's good to. There's like um, in the Matrix, you you know, take the pill and you kind of see how the world works. Is one of the things that happens as a journey when yep. you're on the outside, and then when you're an insider, when you're a commentator, critic you know, commentating on the world, which is which is a valid thing to do in the world. Like I spent yeah. a large part of my career doing it and still do randomly here. And then there's like when you build stuff, right? And when you get to see both, you get to sort of have this appreciation um, where like criticism in the world is a valid pursuit. And, you know, people can write criticism of a restaurant or 
journalism at its best, investigative mm -hmm. journalism, all very helpful in the world. And then you see how things are built and you're like, ah, uh, yeah, it's hard. Yes, <laughs> it's exactly. Really hard. You have a whole different, right, totally. And humans are flawed. <laughs> Bad things happen in the world, and yeah. <sighs> so true, so true, so true. Hey, right, speaking of flaws, yeah. Okay. <laughs> right now, it's important for founders to save everywhere they can, and this includes the R and D tax credits, which are a pretty low key way to save up to six figures every year, year in and year out. And NeoTax will help you claim up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars if your business qualifies. The best part. There is literally no downside to using Neotax. The full application takes only 15 to 20 minutes. You'll know in the first couple of minutes if your startup is applicable and you only pay if you get some money back. Their app integrates seamlessly into most accounting and payroll software like QuickBooks and Gusto. And these tax credits do not roll over from year to year. So it's use it or lose it, folks. You got to get it done. Neotax has already helped over 100 startups get these tax credits. So if you're a startup, you have to check out neo.tax slash twist. That's right. Zero commitment to get started. Head to neo.tax slash twist and get $500 in credit on your R&D tax claim. Neotax is making taxes less taxing. A lot of crypto stories this morning. It's been a long time, I think, since we had a big old crypto dump, but we have some crypto news, including yeah. some mm. leaked audited financials. Okay. On, I like audited. I like audited. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And this is actually not about dishy. tether. <laughs> this is not a flaw. So leaked audited financials show that FTX revenue grew more than 10x and profits more than 20x from 2020 to 2021. We should probably start by explaining what FTX is and does. This is, of course, the Sam Bankman Freed exchange, the guy who is buying up the entire uh, crypto industry as it falls into disrepair or parts that are falling into disrepair because he can because he's making tons of money yes. at FTX. <laughs> They're the one who is headquarters in the Bahamas, and mm -hmm. he's a mutual guy who, yeah, is very um, unique and outspoken. Fascinating. So, and FTX itself, like you said, is uh, headquartered in the Bahamas. It's basically uh, Coinbase on steroids. So it's an exchange. Users can buy and sell futures, options, leverage tokens, NFTs, even fiat currency. It has a retail and an institutional business. And the institutional traders are served by this sort of over-the-counter platform. And then they make money with a tiered trading fee structure. So the more volume you trade, the lower your fee. Very typical, actually, yeah. in institutional investing. But in this case, with more of a crypto focus, they also charge traders a daily interest rate when they trade on margin. So 0.03% daily with a 0.10% redemption fee. Um, and then they also charge a 5% fee on both sides of NFT trades, just as a Got little it. explanation of how that that revenue <laughs> mm -hmm. grew 10x and profits more than 20x. And so, you know, the question I always have with this stuff is like, I wonder what's happening now. Did it go back down? I would guess that it reverted and they're doing what they did in 2020 or 2019. You think? Yeah. Yeah. I would think. Probably. You know, I, I don't have any insight into what institutional investors are doing. But it does feel like, you know, and this is a private company, so we don't know. Mm -hmm. That's why the leak is kind of notable. Private yep. companies don't have to disclose their information, but they have investors in all likelihood. And so some investor leaked this or somebody they were raising money or some associate or whatever, in all likelihood, that's how this got out. Or it could be somebody internally who got laid off or disgruntled right. or whatever has an axe to grind. But you have to wonder 
what are these people doing here? Why are they buying cryptocurrencies? And it does feel like this is like a, has a gambling aspect to it, right? Like mm -hmm. these people are trying to find ways to gamble on cryptocurrency because there's no inherent value in almost any of this stuff. So yep. this does feel like a house of cards to me in some so ways. It probably was, right? It's the big crypto craze. So of course there was a ton of, and since they make money on volume of trades, much like Coinbase, you would imagine that, yes, it's all these people getting into this craze in the house of cards. Speaking of House of Cards, another interesting thing from the documents shows that so like Sam, you know, there's here he is buying up all these component parts of this industry. Yeah, uh, it seems the more you dig into any of these companies, the more you seem to uncover that like they're all each other's customers, lenders, borrowers, you know, and 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 at some point collateral providers. In this case, Sam Bankman Fried also founded Alameda Research, mm -hmm. a trading firm. Okay which according to the documents accounts for about 6% of FTX's exchange volumes. Okay. Yeah, he's uh dog fooding his own product, right? He trades a fund on his platform. So this would okay. be like if This would be so like this is not if like Adam and Robinhood. Yeah. had a a hedge fund where he was trading stocks on its own platform and he was 6% okay. of the platform. Got that's it. that's kind of how I would interpret it. It's kind of weird, but okay. So he's one of he's one of his own biggest customers. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's if it was sixty percent, you'd be like, "Well, that's weird." But if it's six percent, six percent, probably fine. I mean, it's not nothing, but you could take the six percent out and still be, I guess, ostensibly, if you're an investor, a good business. Yep. Okay. About two thirds of revenue came from futures trading fees. Fascinating. While roughly sixteen percent came from so-called spot trading. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating to me that all of this energy is going into this space. And people are spending all this time trading it when they're getting no value out of the core currencies. Mm -hmm. So what are they doing with the core currencies? It's almost like we created, you know, uh, you know, a, a virtual casino where people get to trade on currencies that and they have to play some game here. But there's no underlying value to those things. So if you're J trading stocks, you're like, well, Amazon, I use it. <laughs> I got Amazon Prime, I got you know, I'm, I'm getting packages to my house, or I use Robinhood, I invest in Robinhood, I take Ubers, you know, I stay in Airbnb. So I'm buying those things, I use that product. Here, you don't have anybody who's buying and selling these things and flipping them, actually using those products, right. and understanding those products. And so that's why I think this whole thing is such a house of cards. And I, I think there's more collapse to come, if I'm being honest. It is really interesting because it's like, these are all financial products, right? So this is just a pure FTX in particular, as the notice point out. And we just said it's one of the few places you can do options and futures yes. trading and derivatives. And those are more profitable for exchanges. So those are all financial instruments yes. that people are engaging in trading. Now, all of those exist in public markets and equities trading. Sure. But they're you but they're based on something. You're trading options and futures in like hogs or corn or mortgages. mortgages. Exactly. Gas, oil, <laughs> things that go in cars, more right. people's homes, an actual commodity that's in use. Like what is Ethereum? What is Bitcoin? And so, forget right. like and forget going down the long tail of these things. So this is like you created yeah. a thing out of air. And mm -hmm. sure, right? We we are all aware that there's sort of like various projects being created that may or may not end up having lots of value and whatever. But at the end of the day, these were like things created out of air. And then they sliced and diced and financialized the pieces of air yep. and traded that this is like how I feel about buying apartments. Like mm -hmm. I'm such a Montana that I'm like, that's not 
that's buying air. You're buying a floating box. Yes. Yeah, it's even, it's even that is hard to comprehend when you're earthbound, you right. know, country girl. You're like, wait a second. Like, like I'm like, you, do you, what, you don't, un, you don't own the earth under your, your, your bed. Like, how right. is that an investment? What? what you buy is dirt. You buy the dirt. You don't buy um, air. <laughs> well, I mean, even th think about this. Like, in its worst uh, example, the stock market had inventory like AMC, a movie theater change, this Bed Bath and Beyond thing, which we haven't talked about here, but that right. whole manipulation that's meme been going on for the past collapse. week. Like meme stocks, mm -hmm. even in their worst iteration, the most abused, shorted, you know, group buying, pump and dump scams. There's, you can still go to a Bed Bath and Beyond and buy some soap and drapes. You can still buy tickets to an AMC movie there. Even if it's 100 to 1 its value or right. 50 to 1 and it's being manipulated to all hell, there's still an underlying company there where people work mm -hmm. and provide value to consumers, I guess, right? It's not like these things are trading on air. If you build all this infrastructure to trade, uh, you know, some ephemeral promise of something to come, it's very, very, very strange. Even private market. We're talking about sale plan. Like mm -hmm. when we made that investment, we're like, okay, there's a couple of customers. We'll talk to those early pilots. There's some product here. We can look at the product. We could go look at the interface. We can talk to the founders. Okay, there's something going on here. We can look at some financial statements. We can look at some bank accounts. We, we could do some kind of diligence. The diligence on a cryptocurrency is like, okay, how many commits were made to this project? And it's like, oh yeah. And then this guy created nine different <laughs> personas to put commits mm -hmm. in. Like, what, what exactly are you investing in here? And then yeah. let alone trading futures on, it, it's wildly uh, ahead of itself. It's, yeah. It would be like us betting on, you know, this person inside of Stanford or, you know, Berkeley says, I'm going to create a company when I graduate. And we're like, great, here's a million dollars. And they're like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, yeah, put it in a bank account and start thinking of ideas and write white papers. That's what's happening in crypto. I, like just, people right, who I, just, invest, I just invested in your future. I invested <laughs> in your future. Right. So, right. Yeah. So and again, not to say weird. that this won't turn into could turn into something. It could turn into something, but like when you look at and it probably will. But it's imagine if in the early days of the internet, people started like creating financial products out of uh the concept of TCPIP. It wouldn't mean that TCPIP wasn't real and a valuable protocol and a way to interconnect computers, but if, but if somebody's out here making billions of dollars trading derivatives on TCPIP, then all of a sudden you start to think that maybe TCPIP isn't the product. In fact, I am trading uh, on margin now uh, RSS feeds with enclosures because I think podcasting is <laughs> going to be big. What these people forget about open <laughs> protocols is they're open protocols. Anybody right. can fork them. So the, where does the value actually manifest itself? It manifests itself on the application layer. So let me explain what I'm saying here. Okay. Who's the biggest beneficiary of the RSS OPML attachment standard that Dave Weiner worked on? Not Dave Weiner. Yeah. Not the people who contributed to that. It's Joe Rogan. It's Spotify. It's Apple Podcasts. Right. It's us. It's people who built either a podcasting application, an advertising business, a, a property, call her daddy, this week in startups, whatever. Joe Rogan. That's where actually the value is captured. So if you are making an open source, decentralized product, and then you're hoping to capture value, and then you're saying the token's going to capture the value, but the to the whole thing, if, they if the tokens were too expensive, somebody could fork the whole project and start over from zero and then own it mm -hmm. and make it proprietary in some way. 
So I think people haven't thought this through, um, if I'm being totally honest. Now, there is some, there I are mean, some Sam examples. Sam Bankman-Fried has, right? He was like, great yeah, job sure. creating this like totally open standard thing. And there yes. will be a bunch of them and I will financialize the sh out of them. Yes. Good job, that guy. He created I, I, yeah. a whole new product, and that product is how to make money trading stuff that other people invented for free. He's just taking a vig on people's belief that there's something here. Yes. Before we get to the ad, it makes our team so happy to see our partners celebrate big wins. And I was so thrilled to hear about this huge funding round for our partner, Odoo. Really great stuff from Julian and the team, especially in this crazy venture market. It speaks a lot to the incredible product they're making. And, you know, right now, you've got a lot of SaaS apps. Maybe you don't need all of them. Check out Odoo's suite of business apps because you're going to save money and you're going to get more done with less effort. Using Odoo means you don't have a bunch of different SaaS subscriptions weighing you down. Everything you need is already inside of Odoo. All you have to do is flip a switch and turn it on when you're ready. And they'll only charge you for the apps you're going to use. Odoo has over 40 main apps and over 16,000 apps from their open source community. We're talking about sales, accounting, marketing automation, HR, website builders, and so, so much more. You can have one customer support contact, all your data in one place, and all of your apps will be supported by that same customer support team, not 20 different ones. And here's the best part. Your first app is free forever. And Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. Amazingly generous, $1,000 right now. Odoo.com slash twist. Odoo.com slash twist. I kind of liked the way Howard Lindzen framed it two Fridays ago. And uh, people, some people loved that interview. Some people hated it. Uh, but he just said it's more internet. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what it is, isn't it? Like mm -hmm. we had distributed, you know, BitTorrent and, you know, other uh, Kazaa. We, we had these open source distributed computing platforms before. It's just more internet. Blockchain, just another database, kind of a database that's slow and doesn't work very well. But it does at least, you know, let everybody see the transactions and it's immutable and nobody controls it. But, you know, I just wonder, like, the amount that's been invested in here's what I would like to see. And this is an analysis we have to start thinking about mm -hmm. how much has been invested into crypto by venture capitalists by the public? Where did that money go? And then what money comes out of it? So I'm going to say, you know, investors put tens of billions of dollars into this. Somebody must have the statistic of how much venture capital has been put in, just venture capital, professional mm -hmm. investors mm -hmm. has been put into crypto projects. Okay, let's say it's 50 billion. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's say they own 20% of those projects, 30% of those projects. Okay, a third. Okay, so now there has to be 150 billion for them to break even. And to hit venture numbers, there has to be 500 billion. In other words, you know, like a, a Google or a Facebook or a Tesla has to come out of this or 10, you know, or seven Ubers or Airbnbs have to come out the other side. Have we seen one? Right. Coinbase is still a trading platform. Exactly. Not it's not a crypto project. Exactly. So the product in crypto is trading. Like that's what nobody wants to admit. The big, the biggest value creating product with obviously fantastic gambling. product market fit is gambling. Yes. It's trading. 100%. It's financializing a thing that only barely exists and is super nascent and making billions off of it. And that is flipped. That's just flipped. Usually when something has value is when you start trading in it. Correct. When has it ever happened in history before that before a thing became the thing it could be? 
Yes. We started financially trading the crap out of it and making billions of dollars. Normally, value is created in the world, and then derivative financial products are created on that value. Yes. So this home provided value to the family that lived in it. This apartment complex provided value to the owner who had 12 tenants who became a millionaire. And those tenants got value as well because they could find a place to live. Okay, now let's bundle these together and make some sort of REIT, you know, whatever. Oh, this smart group of people in Silicon Valley decided to invest in 30 companies. Let's create a venture fund and a venture ecosystem where LPs put money in and then something comes out because they found some value here. Right. What we have here is no value has been created, basically. Right. I mean, unless you consider like some of the NFTs valuable, which I do, I guess some are. And then people have created, I'd say 90% of the value has been in the financial derivative products on top yes. of the totally. 10% of value that's been created. It makes no sense. I, like, and then even dark web tulips. transactions. I mean, that is valid, but right. But again, I mean, I, it's just it's the backwards nature of this. And I am not engaging in the question of whether fiat currency was also invested, by the way, and what backs the US dollar. It's the full faith and credit of the United States. Mm -hmm. That's what backs the dollar. It's a like, lot of battleships and nukes. Dude, a lot of battleships not, and nukes. That a lot is of not productive the same people. thing as we created this thing. It could have a lot of value. I'm not even arguing that it couldn't. But it doesn't yet. And because we have flipped the process, we're going to make it even like... We've actually literally created a system where it's going to be near impossible for Bitcoin to ever become a currency because it's too valuable as a financial product. And then here's the thing that's come out is regulation. So now regulators are like, okay, what game are you playing over here? Right. So we need to get involved in you created a casino in the sky to trade things that have no inherent value. How do we even regulate this Meshuggah? And yeah. part of this leak was that the FDIC, you know, you hear FDIC insured in those commercials, like the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is supposed to backstop, you won't lose your money if it's in a bank account kind of concept. They issued a letter to FTX and five other companies that, um, and the agency demanded they take immediate steps to correct, quote, false or misleading statements on products being eligible for insurance protection. In the letter, yeah. the FDIC said FTX US President Brett Harrison posted on Twitter content that contained misrepresentations about deposit insurance. Harrison responded to Twitter writing, quote, per the FDIC's instruction, I deleted the tweet. The tweet was written in response to questions raised on Twitter regarding whether direct USD deposits from employers were held at insured banks, i.e. Evolve Bank. We really didn't mean to mislead anyone and we didn't suggest that FTX US itself or that crypto slash non-fiat assets benefit from FDI insurance. I hope this provides clarity on our intentions. Happy to work directly with the FDIC on these important issues. So and this is just this the is thing the, uh, that keeps coming up is like some of these companies have hmm. seemed to suggest, what was the other one? Was it Voyager? There was another one that got in trouble for seeming to suggest that if you consumer made an investment here, made a deposit, yeah. that that deposit would have protection, right? There are all these screenshots from Reddit threads as some of these big, you know, companies have collapsed in Celsius and things. And they were like, wait, but they took our money. They can't just, it can't just be gone, right? And it's like, yeah, it, <sighs> it looks, walks, quacks, and acts like a duck, but it's not regulated like a duck. So your money's gone. It's, it's hard enough. a bonkers scenario. The whole thing's bonkers. Uh, everybody who's participating in this knows they're gambling from I hope the civilians do. all the way to the people running the casinos. Everybody knows they're gambling. Everybody's expecting returns that do not match the reality of returns historically. So that's what makes me say, 
anybody participating in this is going in knowing they're gambling. I have sympathy for dopey people in the world who take their life savings and gamble it. I also think that's part of like the lessons you learn in terms of being the sucker at the table that make you wiser in the future. And I'm not saying the people running the virtual casino are not more culpable, they are. But let's be honest, anybody buying something they don't understand, because they heard about it at a cocktail party or on a Reddit forum, and they're trying to 10x their money when everything else in the world says expect 7% a year in the stock market historically and you double your money every 10 years. If that's the common wisdom, and you think you're going to seven extra money a year instead of 7%. Well, I don't have too much sympathy for you. I think this whole thing is going to be looked back on as like, you know, tulip mania 2.0. And then two or three interesting wild. projects will come out of it. Right. Some you know, definitely will. 100%. Some, I mean, it has I to. No doubt about it. There will be products with value. But right now, there is like a gambling frenzy and all these things are chips and there isn't even any cash in the back room. The SEC and our government should have been more proactive on this, I'm being honest. Agree. But I understand their position, which is the rules are here. If you choose to break them, then we enforce them. We're not here to tell you how to innovate. And so I think people took the innovation card and ran with it. Hey, we're innovating. We're doing yeah. something new. And that's kind of how American society works. Like, you know, here's the laws, read them, go build what you want. We're a free country, you can try to innovate. But I, I think a lot of these people, their innovation was, let me find a bag holder. Yeah, let me and, they well, knew and let me like create a, an investment. Like as soon as right, there's innovation. And then there's the part where the SEC could have been like, huh, you created an exchange, you say, for buying and selling and investing in a thing that is a derivative or a whatever, like, that's a security, the end, right? Like the SEC still is not meaningfully, the FDIC is engaging on this topic more than the SEC is. Yeah. And that's the part that makes no sense. It was so easy to create a parallel shadow banking system with no rules, because the SEC was like, this isn't it, it isn't innovation. That's true. It's literally turning the crypto industry into investment banking, but without any rules. They were like, this is new, so therefore the rules that exist in society don't apply to it. And that's just not how society works. Like, right. The rules apply. Right. And you chose to ignore them, and the SEC chose to let you ignore them. I, they should have just gotten in earlier and just said, listen, not. And then it even when they went to build products, it would have helped then, create products, that certainty. But, but here's the dialogue in crypto. Hey, you know, XRP, they did a lawsuit against XRP. We think XRP is going to win the lawsuit. So even the crypto people, when was the XRP law lawsuit? Like three years ago? Yeah. Ever, even since then, people are like, yeah, they're going to win. So therefore, uh, we can still break the rules. Keep on I mean, doing that should have made everybody go, oh, the SEC sued XRP, and they're saying it's a currency. Everybody stop what you're doing. Did everybody stop what they're doing? No. Everybody yeah. suspended disbelief. And to this day, people suspend disbelief. Oh, there was that lawsuit for Coinbase. Hey, these eight things that you were front running is a security or our securities. And then everybody's like, yeah, I think they're going to win that case. I think the SEC is wrong. So like, hmm, you know, there's a there's a lot of knowingly ignoring this stuff. Mm -hmm. Listen, Masterclass is the best way to learn from world class instructors at the top of their fields. 
I love this product. We use it in our household. We've got a yearly subscription and their amazing courses include my guy, Steph Curry, teaching shooting and ball handling, legendary and former Disney CEO, Bob Iger, teaching you about business leadership and strategy. That's a great course. I've watched it. And I recently watched Chris Voss, a former FBI lead hostage negotiator, teach the art of negotiation. Now you may have read his book, you may have done the audiobook, whatever. Those are great. I love Chris Voss. I've heard him be interviewed on podcasts. But when he sits down and does a masterclass, that is the pinnacle of him sharing information. And it is so well done, you're going to learn a ton. Each one of these looks like a movie, the production value and the joy of watching these you're going to really enjoy the aesthetics while getting all of that amazing information They have 11 categories with over 150 instructors now and the lessons are about 10 to 15 minutes long so they can fit into your busy schedule and you can get unlimited access to every single masterclass that's the big innovation here for 15 percent off an annual membership go to masterclass.com startups masterclass.com startups for 15% off. According to Wall Street Journal sources, mm. Amazon is attempting to invest even more in healthcare. It is evidently one of the bidders now for, again, this is Wall Street Journal reporting at this point, um, for the home health services provider, Signify Health. Signify okay. is for sale via auction. It could be valued at more than $8 billion. It's technology provides in-home healthcare evaluations. So its customers are like health plans, governments, employers, health systems, physician groups. It has this network of over 10,000 in-home cl clinicians, and it's part of this value-based care model. This is sort of an interesting evolution that's been happening in healthcare. The idea that you as a provider should get paid based on the value you provide it's, as opposed to the number of services you wow. provide. So you don't have to like overload people with 50 million tests that they don't need. You actually like take the time to hone in on the right one and get paid for the value you provide, hmm. for example. The final bids are due around Labor Day. So they come to your home and provide healthcare. Healthcare uh, evaluations. Got it. Yeah. So if you I wonder I if that they includes come like, like having your blood, blood drawn. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know, know if they can do that or not. But that'd be great if they could. I would right. I wish they could come. What do they call that phlebotomist? Someone oh, take God, yeah, right. Mobile phlebotomy. Like why is why that? Don't they thing? have that like I would having to go to one they of those clinics do, to get your blood drawn like come to my house i'll pay an extra 50 bucks or 100 bucks i come and take my blood every six months and then put it into some ai that's what i really want and there are some companies doing this yeah. but that would be really cool if you just had your markers done every quarter and they just told you over time what's happening and then you could have all that data so in the future if they figure something out, they could go look at your 20 years of blood work and say, oh, yeah, by the way. <laughs> That's what Chloe said from the Landby. I had never heard that yeah. before when when we had Chloe yes. on from the Landby and she was like, oh, you need to have your blood work done every quarter. I was like, what? Yeah, you do? Crazy. Because it's like if you're taking a, a supplement, you need to know if it's working or it was that was absolutely fascinating. Anyway, it's, so, yeah, I'm not it's actually kind of hard to find out. And this is always an interesting pink flag, like. We as a team spent quite a bit of time this morning, Nick in particular, and then I came in late trying to figure out exactly what Signify does with these mm -hmm. home in-home health yeah. services. And it's not super clear what they do. Yeah. Well, so maybe home... there's some phlebotomy, I'm just saying, but yeah. it's not 100% obvious what they do. I think it does. There is some, they work with like Medicare Advantage and some other government run managed care plans. So they might actually do in-home care, like provide that for seniors or other people? 
I think Maybe they're doing a lot of senior. Point, Joanne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are a lot of seniors that they're going in and uh, checking on them um, and seeing how they're doing. So I don't know how that compares to um, in-home care, but this is evaluations. So that's different. But I right. can see this being a very big business for Amazon. And what a great company to take this on. This is where when you have big companies, you know, we have this oh fear of big companies, but sometimes when a big company takes something on like this, they can take a 20 year approach to it. And everybody benefits. If you look at cloud computing and the benefit that's provided to society that anybody can create a startup and have access to this giant computer network and then Mm -hmm. instantly scale it around the world pretty dope you know when you think about it or any merchant can put their stuff a third party merchant can put their stuff on amazon and have access to all those prime customers and fulfillment and distribution like those platforms have provided great benefit to consumers and so i really would like to see amazon challenge healthcare and i'm sure there's a third of healthcare services that can be amazonified to create a new term Mm -hmm. where it's just you know, like a platform, and it goes to the lowest cost possible. Like, why not do that? We're seeing it with drugs, right? With the two companies you interviewed on yeah. the pod. Yeah, we need to take each of these components and then just make them cheaper, faster, and easier, and more and customer you, focused. I mean, that's sure. what's so right. Mm-hmm. What is also like if you look at Amazon's whole approach to everything it's done. It's been this customer love, this customer focus. And granted, that should manifest as like a redesign of their terrible website. But uh, at the end of the day, it is about like providing people with a service that's easy, seamless, and that they love. And we would all agree, hearkening back to Chloe from the land B, that's the opposite of what healthcare does in America right now. Like, it is still, I think, a very open question. Yeah. What how Amazon might actually do this. And I think the Whole Foods acquisition and their attempt to like own grocery is a cautionary tale. But it's I'm, really I'm sure I'm sure Whole Foods is selling is more now than it was. I'm sure it's grown more and sells more than it was it did. But you know, this is all about those pillars at Amazon. Um, we had uh, Ben Gilbert and uh, David Rosenthal on uh, episode 1530. And we talked about with the acquired host and some of the great podcast. Um, we talked about the three pillars prime, mm-hmm. which we're all members of marketplace, people selling stuff and third parties getting on there. And then obviously cloud computing AWS. So what would the fourth one be? Uh, Brad Stone has been on this podcast before friend of the pod uh, who did the everything store and Amazon unbound two books. Um, she just wrote an article for Bloomberg, he thinks the advertising business isn't the fourth pillar because that doesn't have to do with consumers really, right? Yeah, uh, the pillars as defined by Bezos, in his shareholder letter from 2014 were a core pillar. This is what this is Bezos's words, quote, customers love it, it can grow to very large size, it has strong returns on capital, and it's durable in time with the potential to do endure for decades. So yeah, healthcare you fits really that. see healthcare. Yeah, 100%. Whereas Stone advertising, is it loved by customers? No, yeah. no. You heard us ranting about what might happen if Apple starts putting ads in our up in our business. <laughs> it's just too much. Um, uh, well, no, know thy brand is, I think, like a key piece of this. Although I guess Netflix is doing it. I guess everybody's just like, let's go. Um, I mean, just because they're doing it doesn't mean people are going to like it. But yeah, Amazon Q2 AWS revenue. 
20 billion basically i mean marketplace q2 online and third party 78 billion low margin obviously they kind of break even on that i think prime q2 subscription revenue 8.7 billion damn uh, 140 bucks a year for prime so and that's high profit i think and um, to be clear like aws which is i'm sure high profit by itself hmm. is on a 79 billion dollar run rate Crazy. more that like is is bigger you know compared yeah. to the marketplace business at 78 billion like marketplace business means e-commerce for those of you wondering right i don't know the e-commerce well, marketplace, yeah. but basically not like facebook marketplace yeah just which is common for them which is common for them yeah aws the profit center marketplace loss leader aggregates a bunch of people at some point they could just turn the dial and, and i'm sure they will at some point when they kill a lot of competitors and we're all addicted They'll be like, you know what, let's start making a little bit more. And they'll just turn that dial, as I've talked about before, the big companies can pick their revenue because am I going to change my buying behavior because it's two, three, four percent more money to buy an Uber and Airbnb or stuff on Amazon? No. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, if you change it to 10%, nobody would. It's only you have to get to 20, 30% price change to actually see consumers change their behavior. Mm -hmm. Under 15%, consumers don't change their behavior, just as a general number. 15% is the just noticeable difference uh, in terms of our perception as humans. So, yeah, you know, if you change the brightness of something or the hue of something or the sound level of something, humans don't notice until it's above 15% as a general rule of thumb. Hmm. You can change prices, 10, 12%, people probably won't notice. So it's interesting, Brad Stone predicted in this piece in Bloomberg that either healthcare okay. or home automation would become Amazon's sure. fourth pillar. And it's kind of interesting because the two companies that Amazon just bought, confirmed, you know, setting aside these rumors, are iRobot yep. and One Medical. Yep. Do you think they've previously like, bought Ring? They previously, exactly. And they've got like obviously strong Alexa penetration, even though all she does is give me the weather and then annoy me by saying, by the way, uh, and try to tell me all the other crap she can do. But like, I wonder if there's an internal. Amazon's very famous for sort of pitting things against each other. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if they are pitting these two things, right? It's sort of like a, a Highlander, like there can be only one fourth core pillar, and they're trying to figure out internally and make them compete to the death to see if it's a I mean, home automation or healthcare. I've never seen a chair or stool with five legs. Exactly. I don't see why they couldn't have five legs. So the metaphor might no way. be unnecessarily they're gonna make each other murder each other. It could be that but I think <laughs> they're gonna I think they're gonna have a five legged stool, you know, I think that's where this is going. Like, I, I think they'll keep going until somebody stops them. That's what I think. And well, that the too. question is, do you yeah, want to yeah. stop them or not? At this point, you know, this is where Lena Khan and our government has to think what's I mean, healthcare sucks in this country. If Amazon wants to blow 10s of billions of dollars trying to make it better, do we want to stop them? Or do we want the government to be responsible for this? Or do we want the free market? Right? And I'm I so, think we I'm want sorry. the free market to exactly to, to, we freaking do. And healthcare is so vertically integrated. And there are monopoly choke points all throughout healthcare that I'm sorry, if this was the thing that Lena Khan tried to block Amazon from doing, I actually would be pissed as a consumer exactly. of healthcare, the worst system in the world. There's nothing to lose. Our no. healthcare sucks in this country. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like education as well. Like, <laughs> Please let Amazon or Google get college accreditation and let them compete in that space, right? I mean, this is where when you look at credits for schools, right? This is something I brought up on All In last week. 
you you have the same people in Atherton fighting housing mm-hmm. and then also being against school tax credits. What people don't realize is in California, your little Atherton community, your little Palo Alto, whatever it is, they keep all their education dollars and make their own schools in their little bubble where they don't allow multifamily homes. And then the town next to it, East Palo Alto or Milbrae or San Carlos gets none of those dollars or Redwood City, but they have to have all the apartments as well. And then you're against the tax credit, but all your kids go to private school and you're not impacted by this. I kind of have come around to parents getting a tax credit. I know it's unpopular, but I'm just thinking pragmatically, if there's no competition, well, if I was a parent, I would like to have the option of getting that $16,000 and coming up with my own solution if I didn't agree with the solutions that were provided by the government. I think that's the same thing with healthcare. Like, the, sometimes the government sucks at doing things and having competition might kick them in the ass. Yeah. I don't know. How, you, I don't, how do you feel about those school credits? I, I, I was torn on this issue for a while until I just saw, like, public schools not getting better. So why not have competition? Why not have charter schools? Why not have choice? It's like a, yeah, I know it's a real, this is a really tough question for me because I get very frustrated with the lack of innovation in schools and all the different ways that they are um, stuck and don't want to change. But also like every solution that we come up with, including a tax credit, sucks money away from public schools. So it's this sort of like, it's this chicken and egg argument about schools where we, we cut, like if you gave me, if you paid me you know, $8 an hour and told me I had to do 11 different jobs. Then you would be like, you suck at your job. You're fired. And I'd be like, yeah, but you paid me $8 an hour and gave me 11 jobs to do. And that's kind of what we've done to public schools. Like we've stripped away funding more and more and more. Like the pay is really low, right? So we've created crappy public schools. And now we want to create all of these fixes that would just continue to siphon money away from public schools. And we don't actually know if they would work if we just funded them properly. Uh, And they now have raised the prices on uh, teacher salaries and still can't find people. So it's like my view of the world is at this point, having watched this up close, it's if you don't have competition, you wind up having the product becomes less crisp. You know, it becomes less innovative and we need innovation. So it really is that simple. If we had competition in schools, it would be there. So you could still, all these other things can be true. We're underfunding it, whatever. Well, if you without competition, there is no, I mean, there could be inter-school competition. Like I agree with you and also schools are a complicated issue, but I think you're absolutely right. Like at some point you do have to be pushed to do better. And one of the, one of the, best possible ways to get pushed is somebody else coming for your job they're coming for that 16k because i have kids in public school uh and private so Mm -hmm. i have both of these things and i watch it you know like and i'm lucky enough to live in a community where we're overfunded you know not dissimilar to atherton and the public schools are unbelievable they're better than most private schools in in other areas and i can see in the public schools they're like hey we need your child to cut during the pandemic. They're like, we need your child to hit this many days, whatever. And I was like, well, I'm going to do my own school situation. And they were pressuring me. And I realized, oh, they don't get this like 17k or 20k from the government. Right. If my kid doesn't hit these things. So they have in their minds, it's we need your kid in school. Okay, that's healthy, right? Funded for butts and chairs. It's like, exactly. What? And well, and then if they were losing butts and chairs, because parents had a choice, 
Mm -hmm. then they'd be like, well, we got to make this more attractive to parents. And so that's where competition comes right. in. Right. But they know. are on a limit. They are on a fixed income. So they can't. That's what I'm saying. That's the chicken and egg problem with schools is like they're on a fixed income because governments have said this is how you get funded and this yeah. is how much you get the end. Like, you, yes, you can do a little bit more with less. But like, thank you, Bill Gates, by the way, for creating Common Core and a standard that they all have to teach to. So they actually can't innovate even on curriculum mm -hmm. in the ways that they would want to. Right. So like. Yeah. If you, it's not a free market. Schools are not a free market. That's why I'm saying the competition thing is a little bit flawed because they, they will never be able to compete on the same playing field. I think they would then be forced to compete. And it turns out- But who is they? They would then for, be forced to like change state laws all across yes, the country? Because what would happen is you'd have parents going to this private, this private school with their 16, 17K tax credit for a school voucher. And then- the public schools would say, hey, in, look, at they're all picking that one that has this innovation. We need to have that innovation as well. And boom. And the and state would we, be like, you can't have that. No, the state would have to change that because then they would like, okay, the schools are not competitive. They would have to look at that issue of why. But it turns out right now, public schools are paying like 50% more than private schools. So that's the other thing you're looking at. Oh, like, they what? pay teachers more for sure at public schools. Yeah, yeah, they're paying teachers. Like I was looking at public school salaries in California, 80,000, 100,000, 120,000. And that was that's like a private after, school, 50, that's after 60, a decade 70. or more. Like after Berkeley, a decade, yeah, yeah. Right. Berkeley's starting salary, according to one of our noties, is $58,000. Right. Um, I mean, what? 10000 more, more than Vox's starting pay. <laughs> Just so you know, yeah. comparing to journalism. Because <laughs> I happened to look at these because I was looking at the inside salaries, which are all sixty-five dollars to $80,000, you know, for analysts and stuff like that. And I was like, well, what is Vox pay? And I was like, 48000 is the starting pay of Vox? You know, the whole Yikes. union thing we were talking about last week. Yeah. Well, then it goes up from there. But you know, I think, you know, if you have five or 10 years experience, I have a feeling being a teacher at a public school pays more than being a journalist right now. Um, at like a Vox, I'm not singling off Vox, they just yeah. have to be I mean, I'm sure BuzzFeed has the same pay scale, because they also have a union. And Gawker, I think did before they kind of got sold for parts. So you put it together, a public school teacher with a couple of months off, I think makes more than a journalist on average, uh, in, you know, in a major city. Interesting, right which is fascinating to me, I guess. It is fascinating. That's also like only one of the many structural problems of schools, to be clear. Like there's a- There's a ton. I think, I to be honest, I think before states changed the rules to allow public schools to compete on a, a an even playing field, all the schools would close. I really do. I'm like, I don't want to be a downer about it, but like it, we, it, it, we, everything about that structure, that infrastructure is just a disaster. Yeah, it needs to be broken up. It, yeah. it, the, the unions are a bit of a cartel in New York. Bloomberg was trying to break the union there because they were keeping the worst teachers employed. They, you couldn't fire a teacher. Like the <laughs> level of debauchery and insanity in New York, like it took years and they had a building of the worst teachers and those teachers couldn't be fired in New York. So they put them in a building where they just sat at desks and did nothing all day. They just, it was like a no-show job, but they had to show up and sit in oh this place yeah. And there was nothing for them to do, but they couldn't fire them. It is possible for a union to have too much power. Right? It, just like it's possible for people to not have enough power and yeah. need a union. 100%. It's possible for a union to have too much power. And then, you know, you don't have the ability to fire people. I mean, um, who are just really bad at their jobs. Mm -hmm. All right, listen, we have some M&A we can touch mm -hmm. on here. Mm -hmm. Startup M&A, critical part of what we cover here. So maybe let's go to that. Yeah, small companies still getting bought and eBay still making moves. Oh, wow, eBay Who still at it. Who knew? 
Yeah, eBay is uh, acquiring an e-commerce platform for trading cards called TCG Player for $295 million. eBay's uh, current financials, its market cap is about $25 billion. Uh, 2021 revenue was $10.4 billion. It actually had a little bit of a COVID bump as well. Net income, $252 million. TCG Player is uh, serves individual users and businesses, and it's like gamified e-commerce. So the more you sell the more new like abilities you have on the platform, which is kind of interesting. Um, Yeah, trading cards. for people who are selling like Pokemon cards and like Magic the Gathering cards, all this kind of nonsense. Pokemon. Sports sports cards, cards, big time. Yeah, evidently trading cards among all of, you know, I mean, there was that kind of whole entire alternative asset boom. You saw like sneakers and wine and fractional ownership and art um, and trading cards was a huge part of that. So... (laughs) What well, is awesome they, is that eBay was like, ooh, during the pandemic, everybody got really into trading cards. And then a year later, bought a company that trades them. Well, here's the thing. You know, when you have a vertical, this speaks to verticalization, right? Yeah. eBay is a wide platform. Sure, people are trading Pokemon cards there. But is eBay and, and those buyers, what's more compelling to them? A vertical site where you only sell cards and then mm-hmm. every card has a chart and they've got a database of every card. They say, hey, this card is in mint condition. This is class B condition, class C, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And we'll certify the cards and we know the cards. And we can show you the price of that card over time in a chart, which is what this TCG player does. They just can build an experience where 100% of the real estate on the website is dedicated to the needs of card traders. Now you go to, you compare that to StockX, which is just sneakers. Okay, eBay sells sneakers, but it's eBay validating and saying, hey, these are the right sneakers. And do they have the database and they have that dexterity? Mm -hmm. And so you want to as an entrepreneur, eventually be able to do everything. But having specialization is an equally valid path. And so what you're seeing here is eBay, you know, ran the table on all auctions. But then people started chipping off verticals. And this was a, a, a play that Airbnb did. There was a section called couch surfing. It probably still exists on Craigslist. We can pull it up and show you if it does. Couch surfing is where uh, Joe, uh, one of the co-founders who just left um, Airbnb, I think, found the idea. And he famously shared the email that he sent to Brian saying, hey, I think we could rent our apartment to keep our startup alive. Yeah. <laughs> That's how good that idea was. And yeah. that was but one little section of Craigslist. Another little section was buy and sell stuff, right? Which became Facebook Marketplace or even eBay. Then mm-hmm. there was also uh, like dating and casual encounters, and that became Tinder. Yeah. What was the other one, Molly? Missed connections. I was going to the dating thing too. You were going Remember to the missed one. connections? Oh, That's that like, was so sweet. That was some of the best reading on the internet. I feel like yeah, missed connections could be a screenplay. Be of like, like I saw you on the bus. You were oh, wearing so Doc sweet. Martens. <laughs> I was reading. <laughs> This I book. was reading Fahrenheit 51. I was listening to everyone but the girl. <laughs> <laughs> you were reading William Gibson's Virtual Life. Neuromancer. Totally. We, we were on BART. <laughs> I was tripping on a microdose of <laughs> yellow you sunshine had, mushrooms. <laughs> you had a lime green iPod and I was on my way to my to pick up my Burning Man trailer. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was going oh to my Bikram yoga class, sweaty. <laughs> I was coming back, drinking my filled cold brew. Oh, you were man. polishing your blue bottle chicory Dude, coffee. The, the noties are saying that uh, misconnections now still exist on Reddit. Thank you for the okay. evening of entertainment. Done yeah. and done. So anyway, congratulations to the founders of this. Yeah, that's great. And I think it's a smart move. And this is what you see in M&A, Molly. Some startup carves a niche out of a big company. Then the big company ignores it and is like, we can do it ourselves. But they out they get out executed. They can't. Because right. you're the CEO of eBay. You've got 150 categories. Autos, this, that, trading cards, shoes, music, you know, autographs, whatever. You, you, mm -hmm. And you try to get somebody to head up the trading card and they're a schmuck. And they can't make it great. And you're like, but look, there's a startup doing it better than us. We're eBay. We have more resources than them. And the person's like, yeah, I'll do that. And then the person doesn't show up for work or they're just lame. Yep. And you get your ass handed to you. eBay can get their ass handed to them in a category. And then eBay has no choice. But they're like, geez, look, these guys are going to run us over if we don't buy it. And that's what happened here. And all it's a great. Um, this should be a good note for BC Sunday School too because you talk to a lot of companies and it's like why wouldn't amazon right i always you always have that question why wouldn't google just build this why wouldn't amazon just build this and most of the time the answer is we just we have just enough of a competitive edge that it would be easier for them to buy us because weirdly a company will never plow 300 million dollars into building a trading cards vertical vertical but they'll take it out of a different budget and buy the company and you know what the key factor is that you can look at to determine this as an investor if they're going to win, yeah, product velocity. Yeah. So nice. here's the thing. Nice. Who's going faster? This uh, TP whatever mm -hmm. TCG player is TCG player adding more features that delight customers, or is eBay? Now, if you look at a company like Facebook, my lord, you know Zuckerberg locks the doors and says we have to be better than Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok. And their product velocity has always been faster than anybody in the industry. Amazon, incredible product velocity. They say we're going to re release the Kindle, you know, Amazon Fire TV, tablet, Amazon Fire phone, ring, whatever it is, they move faster, yeah. faster, faster. And that's when you can tell the big company. Now, eBay obviously did not move faster than TCG Player. So mm -hmm. if you're a founder or a capital allocator, you must accept that you have to out hustle the big player in the space and go faster. If you look at Coda and Notion, they're going much faster than Google or Microsoft in that document creation wiki space, right? Does it mean that Microsoft and Google aren't going to wake up one day and go, you know, what, we need a, a competitive product here? They will. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're going to catch up mm -hmm. because the product velocity, if you look at Coda, Notion, Slack has been extraordinary. And then Slack got sold. And now their product velocity hasn't been as good as it needs to be. Yep. And now Microsoft Teams can catch up to them. So yep. this is where product velocity, how quickly you ship features matter. I am obsessed with this in this company, in this podcast. I'm always thinking about new features. How fast are we going? It makes mm -hmm. people disturbed sometimes unless you have the right people and you explain to them what you're doing. We have to move fast. And then some people, Molly, you may have witnessed it firsthand, are like, well, wait, we just decided this and now you want to decide that. And it's like, we got new information. We're obviously going to need to go faster here because look, there's other people going faster than us in this direction. We need to be competitive. And that relates to the schools discussion or the healthcare discussion we should have. Product velocity in education and healthcare sucks. 
Where does product velocity thrive? In small teams and startups. So if you're in a small team, accept the fact that you have to run, not walk or jog. That is the job of startups. If a startup is walking or jogging and they're lollygagging, don't invest. Don't work there. Quit. And if you're a lollygagger, don't go to a startup. Go to eBay. Yeah. Go work yourself. at eBay. Lollygag yep. at eBay. Yep. That's for lollygaggers. Say lollygaggers again just one more time. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. Too much lollygagging. Who, lolly you know who's not lollygagging? Not even a little bit. Uh, tell me. Launch Accelerator Cohort 25. Oh, right. Yes. Mm -hmm. How are those interviews going? We just wrapped up uh, the Accelerator, number the 25th one, which is bonkers. And so I've been interviewing the the founders. And so we've got one today. I'm interviewing Launch Portfolio founder Arjun Shokin. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of a company called Swade, S-W-A-Y-E-D. This is one of those companies where when we were talking to the founder, Nick and I were basically slacking back and forth that like, I love this business. This is genius. This is so up your alley because what Suede does is takes your customer journey in a hospitality mm -hmm. setting like a hotel. You, the customer, yep. opt in to yep. this, uh, you know, sort of like membership loyalty thing. They shape and map your customer journey, meaning the hotel will, you know, pay you in some way to take in a ton of user movement data. And then they use that data to make the hotel or the hospitality experience like way more delightful and way more Amon level. And I'm like, thank you. But it doesn't have to be at expensive hotels. It's for everywhere. So it's amazing. imagine you go to a hotel, you, so good. you know, um, opt into using this software, um, you have the app or whatever, they know that you went to the gym. And then they send a fruit plate, or they offer you a uh, a protein smoothie to your room. Mm -hmm. And they text you and say, after the gym, would you like to do this? Now, in a great hotel, they're monitoring your movement just because there's staff around. So the staff says, hey, you know, guest Calacanis in room 40, a guest Miss Molly Wood in room 30 is uh, at the gym right now. Uh, this is a good time to turn over their room. We, we saw them leave their room. We saw them go to the gym. Let's go turn the room over. Uh, also, this would be a great time to offer them Again, uh, you know, this protein smoothie, or maybe they want to get a massage later and upsell them on that. Mm -hmm. and, and this is, uh, if you've ever stayed at some of these nice hotels like in Amman, um, you know, you, you go out for a run, when you're coming back, they're handing you a bottle of water and a, a cold towel. That's always like so refreshing. So That's when I was, the first time I ever stayed at Shutters on Sony's dime when I worked for Sony for a year, I came back from a run and the guy handed me a cold towel and water and I said, Oh, how much does it cost? He's like, it's complimentary. You're paying $400 for the room, dipshit, in so many words. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, can I get two bottles of water? He's like, there's a refrigerator right there. You can take as many as you like, sir. And I was like, I'll take two? And he said, <laughs> by all means, sir, take two. Like, and I'm like, it's cold towel. I was like wiping myself with the cold towel. It was great. Yeah. So imagine having that automated throughout your entire hotel chain so that everybody can experience a version of that service because they have opted into it from a technological perspective, because all that stuff is there throughout the hotel, right? The the room key swipe, the swipe to enter the gym. Rivka, the, like, we need this at flow. You're flowing around the space, and then I come bring you the good stuff. Green okay? smoothie. I bring you the tequila smoothie. Okay. It's not the, Banana, it's not avocado, time. and uh, the Don Julio. You Rivka. can. You will never smell meat in your room, Rivka. There will never be a meat smell. Everything, yeah. you flow for vegans. David Friedberg <laughs> is on the board 
we've decided if you want to live the flow lifestyle, no meat. The no whole meat. place. No everything meat in the whole vegan. Apartment. That would actually be that would be great. Can you imagine if they had like, vegan only flow places? I mean, for the for the climate conscious out there, that's actually like not the worst idea. People would totally go for it. Um anyway, super interesting. It's a it's a great awesome. business. Yeah. It's a really interesting interview. Uh Arjun Shokin coming up right now. So the Launch Accelerator just completed its 25th cohort. I am going to sit down with some of the founders over the next few weeks to dig into their businesses. Up today, Arjun Shokin is founder and CEO of Suede at SuedeAI.com. Welcome, Arjun. Hi, Molly. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks for being here and for, you know, being part of our cohort. What uh, I'm going to start with the easiest question of them all. What does <laughs> your, your company do? Yeah, so Suede, uh, we map and shape customer journeys in hospitality settings. So before Suede, I was working for my family business. We own and operate hotels. And we were developing a project here in LA where we had this key question of whether we should put a pool in this location or not. And I think we really quickly understood we had no idea of what people actually did once they arrived on property. So I ended up making the decision by climbing on top of a parking structure, spying at a neighboring hotel's pool, and seeing if anybody was using it that day. But I think what we identified immediately was just we had no idea of what people actually did when they arrived at this physical location. And if we lack this knowledge, then we would be guessing at every level of operations, ownership, and even development. And so we started Suede early 2020 to see if we could address this issue. And that's we've been doing it ever since. So how do you sort of productize that problem? Absolutely. So I think, you know, what's great about hotels is they have an existing infrastructure and data collection that really enables this. Um, so they're capturing massive amounts of data in terms of who their guests are, how much they're spending during their stay, loyalty statuses, and different ways to segment people. And on top of that, they have these very robust Wi-Fi infrastructures that allow us to use the data that devices ping off access points to start building a knowledge in terms of where people are spending time and money within this physical location. So for all intensive purposes, after a guest opts into an enhanced experience on property, we're able to link their mobile device to a central profile that exists within the property management system of a hotel. And that's this link is what enables us to understand who this device is within physical space. And then based on you know where they're going on property, their device pings with access points, where they're spending on property, real-time you know, activities such as transactions or changes to the reservation, we can start building together a really cohesive understanding of how this person is spending their time and money at this physical location. And this is kind of the core data set that we're using to you know, enable a bunch of operations and also eventually smarter decision-making above property. I never knew that hotels were this dialed in. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that there was a sort of a built-in opportunity for this at hotels the whole time, but nobody ever pulled it all together and obviously asked the guests for permission, which seems like the important part of what you're doing. Correct. I think, you know, there's just huge issues that hotels in particular face in regards to just bandwidth and skill set. So I think the on-property team's constantly overwhelmed with their ability to, you know, gather information, access systems, create insights, and then drive action. And I think, you know, that 
you know, problems kind of just increased since the pandemic with lower headcounts across the board. And there's not really a skill set to go into these, you know, kind of complicated systems, which are collecting all of this data, and then asking kind of an hourly employee to go in there and, you know, go through data and then come up with actions out of it is kind of out of the question. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we've identified this opportunity where there there was this existing infrastructure. So it's a key win for us that we don't have to, we have to tell, you know, hotel operators and owners install a bunch of new sensors um, because that, I think that's a losing proposition. Uh, we can really just be a purely software driven solution and mm-hmm. drive value for everyone. Do the customers who opt in get anything in return? Absolutely. Bottle I think, of champagne in the room. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it ranges. And I, I think it ranges in the type of property as well. Um, you know, some of our four-star hotels, it can be as simple as, you know, no coupon attached to it. We know that you're a business traveler and you're in your room at 8 a.m. We'll shoot you a message just about the breakfast available on property. And then we can measure, hey, that these people spend 50% more on breakfast over the course of their stay. And so, I think what we've identified is guests, especially in hospitality settings, are eager to share who they are so they get treated better and differently. And I think that you know, the more times you stay at a place, the more tired you get of explaining to the front desk you've been there before. So I think you can create this really automatic and you know, non-human-driven way of recognizing previous behavior and creating these experiences. And that can range from a free drink to an upgrade to, you know, at one of our more higher end hotels, we're actually creating a white glove experience where we're messaging staff to surprise and delight guests. So like leaving a green juice in their room if we know that they're health conscious. Got it. So that's the shaping part. There's the collection, the data collection part that benefits the hotel and offers them insights in terms of what they can do to improve, you know, get increased revenue and improve the experience. But then there's also the guest side where they're incentivized to spend more or keep coming back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's key for us is this isn't a foreign concept to hospitality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, back in the day in the 90s, prior to the Marriott acquisition, Ritz Carlton was, you know, highest end in terms of their ability to increase lifetime value of their guests. And they used to run this program called Mystique, which was a very manual process of gathering and acting on data. So you would drive up to a lobby. The valet guy would see that there's, you know, golf balls in your car. He'd enter it into the system called Mystique. And then the next time this guest walked by the concierge, they would recommend tea times. And it created this really magical experience of, Mm -hmm. you know, gathering and acting on data. But it was really dependent on, you know, employees. And back then they used to have one employee per guest. And, you know, now they have, you know, six guests per one employee. So it's, you need to use technology to kind of make up for that experience gap. Right. How do you make money? So we've adopted a simple SaaS model in the early days. Um, and I think, you know, we price based on how hotels are used to purchasing, which is a per room basis. And so we just keep it very simple. Um, and that's what's going to allow us to scale to the first 10 million or so, where we price, you know, based on the category of hotel and the number of integrations on a per room basis. And at our current level of pricing, uh, we would just need to hit on average, an average size hotel, about 128 hotels. And so you, about a thousand to hit 10 million. Um, mm-hmm. But I think really on a long-term basis, we view this initial phase as a, as a way to build intelligence on behavior and physical spaces 
and use this data set to inform smarter decisions above property and beyond. Um, and so to hit 100 million, we really want to incorporate a data as a service model where we're essentially, you know, equipping large decision makers with large portfolios and even the brands with data in terms of how different segments of people are using and engaging with space and then making those kind of multi-million dollar decisions such as pools and how you're uh, allocating budget on a development or how you're allocating operational efforts um, with, you know, this data set, which is very valuable. I just really want this to work. I just really want hotels to be psychic at every level. Like, do you see this as something that is applicable at, to hotels at any price? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a no-brainer proposition for hotels because for the on-property team, we're driving, you know, without staff, incremental revenue and guest experience. So for the hotel, it becomes a no-brainer. From a guest perspective, they're receiving a more personalized and better stay on property. And then from the owner, they're gaining this visibility that they haven't had previous access to. And we've mm -hmm. spoken to the largest companies in the space. And you know they are similarly reliant on intuition and past experience when making large decisions uh, because they lack this fundamental knowledge of the guest journey on property. And I think, you know, every time I stay at a hotel, I do get tired of explaining to them I've been there before, or I see, you know, a space that has no relevance to anyone and sits empty. Um, and I think, you know, every time I see that, it makes me sad because I know there's a smarter way. And so it could be better. And I think, you know, one thing that's been interesting is we've seen that it's not just hotels that this is resonating with. Um, we very recently were approached by Austrian Airlines looking to create, you know, a hospitality experience at the Vienna airport. And so for us, what's interesting is the points of kind of integration are very similar to hotels with a central reservoir of data and, you know, a mobile application and access points. And so I think this push for personalization in physical space is going to happen in tangential environments as well. And then last business model question, the the white glove product sounds a little bit like consulting where you're telling uh, hotels, you know, what to do and what to put where is that going to be a core part of the business going forward? And how do you scale that? Yeah. So the white glove experience, I think, just to clarify is, you know, it's we're using the same mechanisms and in interacting with a guest, right? So in the in essence, it's instead of messaging a guest during their stay, we can message a, you know, a manager or an employee who similarly has a device connected to the access points on property. And so if Mr. So-and-so walks into the lobby, you can message a staff member instead of Mr. So-and-so. And you could say, hey, why don't you walk up to him and kind of create this experience for him? So right. I think it, it really, for us, it's not a lot more in terms of customization. I think we really look at, hey, the core product is this data set in terms of guest journeys on property. And this data set can be employed and deployed in many ways, um, whether it be engaging with guests directly, engaging with staff, improving operations or experience, or even above property, making smarter decisions based on benchmarking and markets. Love it. For the record, the only two things I care about are a coffee maker and a bathrobe. <laughs> I can just put that in my profile now. We're good to go. Arjun Shokin is founder and CEO of Suede, which you can find at Suede, S-W-A-Y-E-D-A-I.com. Thanks so much, Arjun. Good luck. Thanks, Molly. All right, everybody. What a big Monday. Remember, 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 if you 
would like to be featured on this program, come to the Launch Accelerator. We interview every company that graduates uh, here. Yeah. Uh, you get to have an interview with Molly. Uh, Launch Accelerator. Uh, you can just go to launch.co and apply. We invest 100K, just like, you know, Techstars, Y Combinator, whatever. And we spend 16 weeks with you, helping you build your company, interesting investors. And we follow on invest in probably 90% of the companies ourselves. So pretty great. Yeah, it's a fantastic program. Uh, we also have a fantastic week coming up. Mm. We're super excited that we're going to have Sebastian Malaby, the author of The Power Law, the oh, book yes. that every, it's, what did they call MFD, FMF Doom? He was like your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. The yeah. Power Law is like your favorite VC's favorite VC book right now. This is the one that the whole industry is has been obsessed with, and we're really stoked to have him on. It's just a great overview of like 12 great moments in the history of venture. So I read it. I knew 10. I experienced six of them up close. Like I yeah. knew five or six of them having been in, either in the room or adjacent to the room where it happened and knowing the principles. But there were three or four I never knew, and I'm in this industry my whole life. So that I thought it was like a very good book, and I, I actually had our entire staff read it. And that's going to be our book club in a couple of weeks. But we're going to have the author on uh, of The Power Law. Going to be great. And then a really great week for another crypto roundtable. I'm excited oh, yes. about this one. Yes. Uh, so we'll have Sunny back and Vinny Lingham back, Sunny Madra, mm -hmm. uh, Sandeep, uh, because they had such a great time and everybody, the show broke out. So we think every two weeks, we're going to do a crypto roundtable till we Love figure it. this thing out. Uh, and so Molly will join me for this one. And we'll have a lot of questions for our two experts, including what cryptos would they buy at this point, if any, if any. Vinny Lingham still owes me 300 bucks from getting me kind of drunk and convincing me to buy Solana at the All In Summit. Oh, there you go. Awesome. Just saying. <laughs> be, right. It's going to be an awesome week. Great weeks. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye.